0: And the Bible's clear. It says, don't get involved in idolatry. If you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, one of the problems that the the Israelites had constantly was idolatry and worshiping gods, gods which which they had never known. (coughs) One of the readings this week, God says, and you offer your children, you make them go through the fire. I would never have even thought of asking you to do this, says God. And you do such idolatry. You give allegiance, ultimate allegiance to other than God. But Paul says here, we all know that idols have no real objective existence of their own. And because idols aren't real spiritual things, we need to be careful to not give Satan too much credit. A block of wood is a block of wood. A piece of stone is a piece of stone, and guess what? God made it through Jesus. I mean, Paul does say elsewhere that, that he does believe in the demonic world. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to say that food offered to idols um, has some significance or that idols are real gods? No. Bluntly, no, says Paul. Not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God, and I don't want you to participate with demons. So Paul says, don't get involved with demons. Okay, don't don't go there. And I think Paul's main thrust is, he says, do not... Even think of going and taking part in a pagan ceremony. Because you're, you're dealing with demons there. But what about just eating meat? Well, the thinking of that age, um, sounds weird to us, but they thought that, that demons got into the meat. And the way that you got the demons out of the meat was by putting something stronger in. And so you offer the, the demon-infested animal to the god. Out goes the demon. In comes your god. Paul says, actually, that's actually a demon, if it's real. But it's just a piece of meat. Um, Paul he says, there's just about no meat which hasn't been connected to to this sacrificial system. Paul's point, Paul's point is that idols or or, or demons, don't inherently live in, in meat. They don't live in idols. Idols are just things that are used by Satan for his purposes. But an idol itself is just a thing. It's not alive. It's not alive. It's, it's not even objectively spiritually real. And he says in verse 8 there, he says, well, let's be clear about this. If you eat something that's been offered to an idol, it doesn't benefit you anything. So the prevailing opinion of the day is that it's been offered to an idol. Suddenly this meat is, "Oh, it's good for you. Paul says, rubbish. There's no benefit. He also says, and there's no detriment. Yoo-hoo, it's been held up to a piece of stone. Wow. That's not going to hurt you. That's not going to injure you. Paul says, we all have knowledge about this. Yeah, you're right. Stuff that's been offered to an idol is just stuff. Unless you add religious devotion into the mix. If John comes to me and says, have some meat, Nick, and I go, thank you, that's fine. If John comes to me and says, have some meat, Nick, I have spent all night prostrated on the ground offering this unto the gods. There we're starting to get into gray areas, aren't we? I know that the meat is just meat. And Satan can't climb into me via what I eat. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But for John, I hope you don't mind me using it, John. (laughs) But for John, all of a sudden, this meat has a religious significance. And and it's not just holding it up to a piece of stone. It's opening it up, opening himself up to demons, says Paul. That, that's what he's on about. The statue is nothing. But when we open ourselves up in religious or spiritual service to the demons, there's a danger. Okay, so what have we got here at Corinth? We've got... The, the, some strong Christians, probably the wealthy ones, saying an idol is nothing. The meat is fine. We can do what we want. And Paul says, absolutely, an idol is nothing. There is one God. You're right. Eating it is not going to hurt you. Eating it is not going to benefit you. Blah. Says in chapter ten, don't go and take part in a, in a pagan ritual because that's bad. I don't want you to be involved with demons because you're involved with Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Got it? Okay. But the meat itself, who cares? Okay, but the problem is that in Corinth you've got some Christians who have spent their whole lives up to this point doing what? Going into the temples and offering their food and their meat to the idols. And maybe if they're poor, the one time when they would eat meat is when they go and take part in a ceremony at the temples. And all of a sudden, you have these people who find it really difficult to split in their emotions and in their head between uh, the meat and the worship. You know how it is. Just the, the smell of the meat cooking would bring back all the old associations of, of, of worshipping this God or that God. And, and being Corinth would probably bring back all the associations of the prostitutes waiting around the corner because that's what they did in the temples. And it would be right that that if you were a person like that, that your conscience wouldn't let you go and take part in something like that for years, maybe, without feeling guilty. Because in your mind you would still be reliving the old ways. And yes, probably these Christians could, could and had accepted that there is one God but it was in their heads and not in their hearts. At an emotional level, they had a problem. They, they, still, they still felt an emotional connection to the old ways and, and to the old lifestyle. And it made them think that what they were doing was sinful. I mean, for example, if, if you are a, a person who's had a problem with drinking then for you, and, and drinking to excess, then for you, drinking is a sin. And you might question, should any Christian drink at all? This Is what some of these were going. They were going around saying, well, should any Christian eat meat at all? I know how I feel about it. I feel it's wrong. Therefore, it must be wrong. And it's true that keeping a clear conscience before God is just its a key part of being a Christian. Our gift of our consciences are horrible and wonderful things. Horrible because they keep pointing out to us every, every time that we fail and fall short of God's glory. Wonderful things because they keep pointing out to us how far we fall short of God's glory. Paul says in Romans that that if we do what we do against our consciences, then we are sinning. If our conscience condemns us, then we are sinning. It's like our, our consciences are, are compasses. And you know it's it's sometimes they don't point to true north, the compass. It's meat, says Paul, it's meat. Your compass should be pointing to its meat. But because of all your past experience, your compass is way off over here. You know, if you ever want to be really nasty to someone, send them out with a compass and put an electromagnet in their backpack. Swings it around. There's forces which can drag your compass around and... And Paul says, you know what? I'll agree with you. We need to work slowly on getting your compass pointed back to, to true north. But if you do what your conscience says is wrong, and for you, you have sinned. And Paul even speaks here about, about those who... By their actions, encourage others to do what they think is wrong. And he says that in the end, what you are doing there is destroying that person, you are injuring their conscience. And Paul's big point here is that the way we act, knowledge says we can go true north if we know where true north is. Love says, love says, that we need to accommodate ourselves to the consciences of our brothers and sisters if I work out that my behavior is going to cause someone to do something that they think is wrong, even though I know that there is nothing wrong with it, if I know that my having a drink with lunch will cause Colin to get drunk for the next three weeks, I don't think you've got a problem with drinks, so good. (laughs) If I know that, How dare I stand on my rights and say, Well, it's okay for me to have a drink? I mean, isn't this our culture and the Corinthian culture is stand up for your rights? If it's okay, do it. Insisting on our rights is maybe a sign that God is not prime in our lives that we are worshipping ourselves, not God. And I love verse 8 because Paul says, okay, so you're doing the right thing. Fine. Are you, are you getting a benefit from doing the right thing? No, you're not. Are you losing out? Okay, you're not having bacon. Who cares? There's bigger the issues here. There's bigger things at stake. It's possible to flaunt your freedom and damage somebody else's spiritual life. Stop them growing in Christ-likeness. In fact, verse 12 is, and this this is what a reason to make sure that our behavior is done out of love for one another. Because Paul says, when we injure a brother or sister, verse 12, the first part of that verse, he says, if we injure another brother or sister's conscience, what are we doing? We are... We are sinning against, not them, but Christ. Can you imagine standing before the throne of God and going, I did the right thing! And God going, yeah, I've got the marks to prove it. Oh, I'm so glad He forgives us. But let's not go there. Let's take three takeaway things from this. First off, what is safe and right for one Christian to do might not be safe and proper for another Christian to do, even if it's right. Knowing the right thing is one thing. But doing the right thing is more about love than what we know. And I have no right as a follower of Jesus to claim my rights if it will negatively affect any other Christian. And there is context, there is context here, of course. I will happily have a glass of wine at dinner, well I won't because I don't like this stuff, but I would happily have a glass of wine at dinner. But not if I knew the person coming was an alcoholic. Perhaps I would happily spend time meditating on God's Word, but not without first explaining what it means to someone who comes from Buddhist meditation. You know, it it is possible to go too far, though. Um, There are some Christians who go, well, you know what, if I need to be careful about the weak brother or sister, then then I need to be really careful, and I will forbid even that which is not wrong, just in case. Um, You never know when somebody else might get hurt. Uh, I read up about this in, in... Often got damaging consequences. For, for example, there are those who say, Well, we will not drink at home as a family because uh, genetically there is a small percentage of people who are, you know, they're prone to getting to alcoholism. And, and so we don't know whether our kids will be genetically prone to alcoholism. So we will be really strict and we'll be really strong and we will have no alcohol in our house because we're good Christians. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds loving, caring. Unfortunately, the statistics, statistics show that, that children who come from such legalistic homes where even morally neutral things are shut down out of knowledge, statistics show that they rebel and they go totally off the walls. What is Paul saying here? He says life is full of gray areas. You've got to think about your context. You've got to think about what it means to love. You've got to, you've got to know the knowledge as well. You know, knowledge is important. You want to grow people towards a fuller understanding of who God is and what it means to follow Jesus. But, but you've got to live in love. You've got to think about the weaker brother or sister who doesn't understand yet. And, and by the way, if you are in some area, a weaker brother or sister, Paul says later on in Corinthians, don't turn around and say you're sinning. Don't go and accuse the stronger brother or sister. Accommodate to their conscience. Because that's what love does. That's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did came down from heaven. Became one of us. Humbled himself. Didn't grasp onto his rights as God. And in so doing, he saved us. I hope that you have lots of gray areas this week. And I hope that you use it as an excuse to love others. And I hope that as you love others that they will see something more of the one who loves us greatly. Over to you, Colin.
1: Thanks for that, Pastor Nick. Let's stand and sing our final song. Uh, We can jump around a bit, maybe. Think of those uh, puffed-up... Think of those puffed-up... Rice bubbles with hot milk it made me feel warmer. So. And it's coffee afterwards, so we can think of the coffee. Maybe we should, we should have sang um, soldiers of the law, you know, you do the marching actions here. Yeah. Stay warm. Thank you, Lord, for um yeah, for dying for us on the cross, Lord. And we thank you that we have freedom in you, Lord. And we pray that as we go this week, Lord, that uh we may uh not exploit that freedom, but uh use it in, in love, Lord, so that we do not offend uh weak Christians, Lord, that we consider our actions and how they affect others, Lord. Um, but pray us, Lord, we may rejoice in the freedom you've given us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um it's uh official, you have to stay for something warm before you leave, so...